If you're driving better in winter because the potholes are filled with snow, you live in Pittsburgh. If you have more miles on your snowblower than your car, you live in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Brother, that is right. Speaking of Pittsburgh, how many were surprised last Sunday night when they won so well? No one? Hey, Billy, come here a minute. Last Sunday morning, I had actually had this outfit picked out. And this was what I was going to wear last Sunday morning until I realized this was jet green. And I thought, that's probably the thing not to do. What I should have done, come here a minute. Come on up on the stage. What we should have done last Sunday morning is both of us dressed like this. So I was into, and he was dressed like that. All right? Around here, we raise our kids to believe what's really true. Right? Look at this one. About a year ago, the mom didn't almost make it, and that little girl didn't almost make it. And we're just glad to see what God has done in her life and how God's brought her through and that her parents are training her well. So that's just, that's the most important thing. Somebody sent, I get all kinds of stuff sent to me. Somebody sent me this one about next week's game, and I thought, that's kind of, <laughs> kind of intriguing. I have an interesting twist. You know what uh, February 2nd is, right? Groundhog Day. You know that? You think he's going to see his shadow? <laughs> I don't think he's even going to come out if he lives in Punxsutawney, but this is what he's going to see if he does. We're in James chapter 3. I want you to turn there this morning. I think James, I mean, I love this book. I, I do. I absolutely love this book. But I really love this book, too. The book of James. And God is fascinating how many different analogies he uses, how many different authors he uses to communicate truth. Probably the reason that I love James so much is that he takes a real hard look at a variety of issues. He's most well known for chapter 1, and that really is a foundation that I've been using throughout this series and will probably continue to use throughout this series as a man who takes a hard look in the mirror. He uses the Word of God as that mirror. And you remember a number of weeks ago when we had the mirror in front of us and we talked about what it is that we see when we look into that mirror. Are there adjustments we need to make? And that really, to me, to be honest with you, is a really good analogy. It's a great word picture of what we ought to keep in mind when we read the Word of God. God, as I look into your Word and I see there are things that I need to change, I need to be really honest with myself. I need to be honest with your Word because it really is pointing out some things in my life I need to make adjustments with. First chapter, he talked about taking an honest look at the kind of clothes that we wear, the kind of outfit that we have, not the physical things that we put on, but whether or not we really are clothed with compassion and tenderness and love. He talked in chapter 2 about whether or not, as a believer, when I look in the mirror, James says, there are a number of things I want you to deal with. I want you to deal with your sin, first off. He said, I want to be really honest with you. I want you to deal with your prejudice. And when you look in the mirror and you look in the Word of God and you look at yourself based on what you're seeing in the Word of God in regard to favoritism or prejudice, what are you seeing? You see that there are some adjustments you need to make. I, I, I do show favoritism. I treat people different. I treat some better than others. I do it at school. I do it at work. I do it with ethnicity. I do it with race. I do it with sin issues. We make some sin issues larger than others. When sin is sin. And as I realize when I look in the mirror and I see that if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm one who has been clothed with Christ, 
And I'm still dealing with this prejudice issue or favoritism issue. I, I, I need to be honest about that. And I need to change clothes. He said, let me go on a little bit further. As you look in the mirror, I want to ask you, is what you're saying and how you're living matching? Is what's coming out of your mouth on Sunday morning, whether you praise or adore, or just simply the fact that you claim to be a believer in Christ, you're following Jesus, does that match your lifestyle? Is it evident? Is it obvious? I mean, probably the worst statement you can ever hear from somebody at work that you've been around for a long time is, I didn't know you were a believer. I mean, they ought to know that. James said it ought to be evident, not just in what you say, but how you live, how it affects you, how it affects your lifestyle. We gave a number of examples of just simply being able to recognize the needs around us and wanting to respond to those needs. And you've done that really well. Last Sunday morning, we had 500. I actually ordered 400 of these. They brought in another 100, so we had 500. We ran out. So we have another 200 out there if you want them, and if you want to bring them in. They're going to collect them on February the 20th, and hopefully they'll all come in. But we really respond well sometimes to a variety of needs. So when we recognize that there are needs out there, and my brother and sister is in need and in want, I don't just want to pray. I don't want to just say flowery words, or I hope somebody meets your needs. I want to respond to that. Ted said our, our people are really great in, in being able to respond when he sends out an email to the small groups about some needs around the community to respond to that. Those are wonderful ways of being able to live out what's in here. Because if indeed Christ is in here, it's going to come out. It is obvious. Every living thing shows or displays signs of life. But it's not only in what I do, it's in how I talk, the attitude that I display. And what James is talking about is walking the talk. If you really want to know what a man believes, don't listen to what he says, watch what he does. What you do gives a whole lot more evidence about what you believe than what you say. It's not what you say, it's what you do. Now, you go to chapter 3, James is going to take another look in the mirror. And now he's going to talk about what we say. It's almost as if he's taking a stop, maybe a turn in another direction. Look, I, I, I know in chapter 2 I talk a lot about what it is that you say, and I want to be clear. I want you to understand that what you say is really important. It really matters. What you do matters as well. And I don't want you to get confused. I don't want you to think that what you say doesn't matter because by the time you get to chapter 3, James is going to say, I want to be really clear on this. What you say does matter. Chapter 2, it's not what you say, it's what you do. Chapter 3, let me be very clear. What you say really matters. James says, I want to take a real good look and I want you to take a real good look at your tongue. I want you to take a real good look at what you say and how you say it and the words that come out and the expressions that you use. No more, or does it matter anymore, nowhere does it matter anymore than when you teach. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Chapter 2, it's not what you say, it's what you do. Chapter 3, let me be really clear. It matters what you say, and nowhere does it matter more than when you teach. Not many of you should become teachers then, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. A lot of times people ask me if I get nervous before I speak, and the answer is 
Absolutely. I cannot get enough breath on Sunday morning when I'm ready to stand up here. If you've ever seen me or sat near me or sat close to me, you'll see me constantly doing this. I cannot get enough breath when I go to stand up on this platform. I've been standing on platforms like this for over 30 years. And every single time, every single Sunday, when I know I'm next, because I have the script in front of me and I know what song has just been sung, and I know I'm about to stand up there, I cannot get enough breath. I try as best as I know how, but it just won't come through. I remember when I was first here a number of years ago, sitting in the old sanctuary, and a lot of junior high girls would sit up near me or sit in the front pew with me, and one little girl saw me doing like this, and I just couldn't get enough breath. She said, you okay? I said, yeah, honey, I, I just, I'm about ready to preach. I know that, and I just can't get enough air because I take this position really seriously, and I get really, really nervous. She leaned over, put her hand on my knee, and said, you'll be fine. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And we've been close ever since. She's now teaching somewhere down the south, and we still stay in contact. It's an extremely difficult position to be in at times for a variety of reasons. When I know on a verse like this that I'm going to stand up before an audience of 400, 500 people twice on a Sunday morning, three times before, when I'm going to stand up in front of people at a funeral service and I'm the one to have the words of comfort, comfort and assurance and strength, it's an incredibly difficult position to be in. And when I look at verses like this, I know why, and hopefully now you know why. If you've ever seen me on Sunday morning, I skirt pretty fast. I'm around all over the place. I try to contact or get in touch with as many people as possible. But I've heard a number of people say to me every once in a while, you look really distracted. We're in between services. This is why. Because when I look at verses like this, they take on a, 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 a whole new meaning, and they remind me again of the position that all of us are in when we read sections of Scripture like this. Now, you need to understand that if James were asking people to teach, he wouldn't have many volunteers signed up by saying this verse. But I don't think his intention is to sign up teachers or to recruit volunteers to be involved in teaching. I don't think this is involved in recruitment at all. I think this is a warning. He said, I want you to be very careful about being in a place of influence, and I want you to make very sure that you have gotten in that place of influence, or when you get in that place of influence, you understand why you're there, and that you do not seek a place of influence for the wrong reasons. Teachers in James's day were highly revered. Matter of fact, there was more influence from a teacher than a parent when James was writing this, and there were a number of people that wanted to be involved in those kinds of situations. They loved being involved in places of influence. And James says, I, I, I just want you to know that you're going to be held to a stricter standard. Those who have that power of influence, those who are involved in influencing someone else, is going to be judged by a higher standard. And with that in mind, I think you need to walk with me through the process of understanding, is he referring to only those in this context and places of leadership or those that go beyond that? As I began to explore this subject this week, and I will over the next few weeks, I I began to pull back a little bit further beyond what we would normally think of as a teacher in the academic arena or even those in pulpits or those in Sunday school classes. I began to think about those in any kind of influence, those in any kind of sphere of influence, coaches and parents, 
small group leaders, Boy Scout leaders, every teacher, regardless of their position or regardless of the size of their classroom, is responsible for more people than themselves. In light of that, the accountability always goes up. I believe a text like this speaks to pastors, to worship leaders, to youth sponsors, to college professors, to small group leaders, to Sunday school teachers, to elementary, high school teachers, college teachers, foremen and shop stewards, business leaders and bosses, coaches and moms and dads. Because when you're in a position of influence, what you say and how you say it has enormous impact on those you're leading, on those who have come or are sitting under your context. Coaches and moms and dads, many of those in the context that I said a moment ago, with words or with the tongue can intimidate, humiliate, or motivate. Now, I've seen coaches do all three. I've seen coaches intimidate. I've been in situations where coaches humiliate. And I've been in situations where coaches motivate. You have as well. Your position of influence, whatever it may be, the words that you use, the tongue that God has given you, which comes out so often in words that are expressed, has the opportunity in a variety of contexts, whether you're a mom or a dad or a coach or a foreman or a shop steward, whatever you may be, your words have the opportunity to intimidate, to humiliate, or to motivate. Any of you being in situations as, where somebody has used words or their position of influence to humiliate you? I have, even as an adult. In sports settings or many of those like that where somebody are using this power of influence that they have over you because of the position to put you down as opposed to lifting you up. People of influence who recognize the power of their position really need to understand the power to change a life, encourage a life, or destroy a life. Now, again, we look at a text like this and it can intimidate us. <laughs> that is not James' idea at all. His desire in this particular context is to challenge us and motivate us and to make us recognize that when we accept a position of leadership or a position of influence, it has enormous implications. So use it well. Use it wisely. One of the most powerful methods or means of influence in a context like this, wherever God has placed you, is the power of the tongue. James 1.26, James said this, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein in their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. He fleshes it out in chapter 3. Let's continue. Chapter 1. I just need you to know, if you're going to be in a position of leadership, position of influence, you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher standard. Now, he states the obvious in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect they're able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouth of a horse to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're extremely large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder whenever the pilot wa wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. A tongue is also a fire. The whole world of evil among the parts of the body corrupts the whole body. It sets the course of one's life on fire and itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can seem to tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With the tongue we praise God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, that can't be. This shouldn't be. Same kind of phrase when he talks in chapter 2 about the issue of favoritism. My brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot show favoritism. He said, out of the same mouth can't come praise or cursing, or comes praise and cursing. That can't be. Can fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. We're going to, over the next few weeks, talk about this particular section of Scripture. Now, Ted's going to speak next Sunday morning. He's going to take the last half of chapter 3. We sat down a few weeks ago. I think every once in a while you need a break from me. And uh, we sat down a few weeks ago, and I said, I'd love you to speak on the 6th and and wear your Steeler garb, of course, but at that time. And so we talked about who's going to do what, and so he's going to take the last half. And I want to talk about this and lay some foundation, then I'll come back in a couple of weeks and pull this together. i got a pastor friend in an extremely large church who spent six weeks on the first 13 verses of chapter 3. And we won't spend that long. But this is an extremely powerful section of Scripture. One of the tendencies that we have in a section like this when we're talking about the tongue is to say things like, boy, I hope so-and-so needs this. I hope so-and-so's here this morning because they need to hear this. They got a tongue that's out of control. They're one of those that can intimidate. There's those... They're one of those that can humiliate. They get a tongue that's always sharing stuff that they probably shouldn't say. I sure hope they're here. If not, tell me when you're going to do it again, and I'll invite them here. One of the very clear tendencies of all of these sections of Scripture is to think like that. What I would ask you to do over the next few weeks as we look at this exceptional section of Scripture is to say things like, I get it. What I say and how I say it has enormous Tongue, at times, my tongue is out of control. And so, God, I, I, I need the power of your spirit to speak to me through this series. Very few pieces of Scripture say things like this. The tongue has the power to give life or to bring death. That, that's pretty serious. And so when I look at Scriptures like this, I want to say, God, I recognize the position I'm in, which scares me to death most of the time. I never want to misuse it. I want to use it well. But all of us, in some form or the other, are in positions of leadership or influence over someone else. And one of the greatest mechanisms we can use in that is words or our tongue. And so my my prayer is, and I hope yours is as well, God, speak to me. But sometimes it's out of control. The subject is enormous. The issue of gossip, people running around with little phrases like this. Have you heard? Did you hear? I'm just sharing this with you so you know how to pray. Things like that that continually infuriate people as well as hurt others. Statements like this, I'm telling you what, I do not want to get on her bad side. Because I know what's going to happen to me. Lies that are constantly shared, slander that hurts and infuriates. Statements from men, I'm sorry and don't mean it. And a woman has said, I've had it up to here with I'm sorry. Because they're just words that mean nothing. As opposed to honest depth of the soul. Words have enormous power to inspire. 
50 years ago, JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country that inspired thousands to get involved and do things. Martin Luther King, his incredible power, I have the dream, and being able to share with that really changed the complexity of our entire context in our society. Words have the power not only to inspire but to ignite. As Adolf Hitler, who had a number of people rise up and follow him in enormous depravity. And obviously what you're seeing in the Middle East and Northern Africa has, uh, uh, again, a huge ripple effect in the issue of the power of the tongue or the power of words. that infuriate and ignite. Romans said their, the, the, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Isaiah, he said, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and a, live among a people of unclean lips. Psalm 34, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Proverbs 12, the words of uh, of the reckless pierce like swords. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes a spirit. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues will keep themselves from calamity. Proverbs again, the tongue has the power to bring life or to give death. One of the easiest ways to sin is with the tongue. One of the easiest ways to hurt someone that you couldn't or wouldn't ever hurt physically is with the tongue. Some people are so good at that that it almost comes naturally, sometimes often without even thinking. Sins of the tongue can hurt and leave marks and wounds more serious at times than bruises and cuts. We all grew up with the line, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but names will never hurt me is a lie from hell. Words can wound, they can destroy a reputation, ruin a family, or divide a church. Words or the tongue, can destroy a reputation, ruin a family, or divide a church. I'm an absolute supporter of the Constitution of the United States. On a couple of occasions when I've been elected official and just did it recently in a couple of contexts, I stood in a courthouse, I raised my right hand, and I said I will support, defend, and protect the Constitution of the United States. And I'm committed to that. But I'm telling you, we can take that First Amendment free speech thing way too far. And some feel because of that, I can say whatever I want, whenever I want, and you remember from grade school, and you can't stop me. Tongue has the power to bring life and to bring death. Isn't it funny? Somebody said how God, God walled the tongue in behind our jaw and behind our teeth, and it still can flap away. I mean, I just love how God designed us with two ears and one mouth. I think there's a lot of statements in that. He walled our tongue in with our jaws and our teeth, and we can still use it and not move either one of them. David said in Psalm 139, or in Psalm 39, I will wash my ways and keep my tongue from sin. He said this, I'll put a muzzle on my mouth because I recognize its power. Psalm 19, as I said, sin is not ended at by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongue. The tongue is a powerful tool or a powerful weapon. James tells us three things about the tongue. One of them we're going to explore this morning, two of them in a couple of weeks. Number one, the tongue has the power to give direction. Verses three or four, we put bits in horses' mouths. He uses the example of the ship and the rudder as well as the bit in horses' mouth. Secondly, it has the power to damage. That's in verse 5. Tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. And finally, number three, which I think is the most powerful, the tongue has the power to reveal 
what's really inside us. Statements like, I'm sorry, and I didn't mean that. To be really honest with you, in many, many cases, it's not true. Especially, I didn't mean that if it's done so often. And that's what James is going to talk about, because there's stuff down inside here, and that's why it's coming out that way. And I get it, and I, and I want you to say, I'm sorry, I recognize that. I, I want you to understand, maybe you didn't mean that, but I'm telling you, there's some stuff down inside that you need to deal with, and that's why it's coming out this way, and one of the most easy ways to utilize those things or to do those things or respond in some way is with the power of the tongue. I want to look at the first one for a moment, the power to give direction. Both examples that James uses is the bit and the rudder, extremely small pieces within the context of a ship, or the context of a horse. On a horse, a, a four-inch bit trying to manipulate or, or monitor or move an 1,100-pound horse on a ship the size of, of some of the ones we have seen, the rudder, comparatively speaking, is extremely small based on the context of the ship. Both, both, both even those small, have enormous power to direct. The slightest movement of the rudder can steer the ship in any direction that it wants to go, regardless, even, he said, is the strong winds. The same with the bit in the horse's mouth can control with that four-inch piece of metal an 1,100-pound horse and get him going in different directions. If you don't let the rudder or the bit do what they're designed to do, the ship will go where it wants to, the horse will go where it wants to. I love horses. I've been a horseman for all of my life, and I'm telling you, I've been on horses that were out of control, and it's one of the scariest things on the planet. To be in a situation where you're sitting on top of a 1,000-pound or 1,100-pound horse who is on his own, and you're not in control. If we don't let that rudder or the bit do what it's designed to do, the horse or the ship go out of control. The tongue, if we allow it to do whatever it wants, can also get out of control. Proverbs 18 said, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. The morsel of information stays inside, and instead of just simply remaining there as an uncertain piece of information, it stays there until somehow we think it's a fact. And without a rudder or a bit, the ship will crash and the horse will run wild. And without restraint or the power of God's spirit on our tongue, we hear information, an impression gets made, an opinion gets formed, a judgment gets shared, and the damage gets done. Without restraint, others get hurt, and so does the person sharing it. Because when the truth comes out, people realize you're passing on information that wasn't true. Your reputation is damaged as well. Sadly, at times, no matter what we say about the statement, the truth will always come out. It does not always happen. And even if it does, the damage gets done. James here deals first with the power of influence to those who are in leadership, to those who use words to direct or influence. We see it in the political arena all the time. Dick Morris was a political advisor in the 1990s who many credit with the idea of style and rhetoric in the political arena being more important than substance. He claims to be one of the first ones that were engaged in ad negative advertising so often now that we want to turn the TV off before every election. He says, like others, we want to do whatever it takes to get someone elected. He claimed that the success of the Clinton campaign at that time that he was in direct responsibility for the success of that campaign was its ability to know the current mood of the company, country and to shape the president's message to fit the mood. So often, political issues spill over into the church, divides congregations, 
over political issues rather than biblical issues. And churches and pastors use their position of influence to influence people with the power of words. Sometimes it carries itself so far and too far far where some churches and some pastors use their influence to extremes. If we're not careful, someone has said we can be led to believe that the United States is God's agent and therefore whatever the United States chooses to do is somehow sanctioned by God, and that's not always true. But sometimes in the political arena that spills over into the church and those in position of leadership and those in positions of influence use the power of influence and use the power of words to direct people in a particular direction. And sometimes it's to an extreme. Obviously, we're very familiar with Jim Jones years ago and David Koresh who led people to their death based on the verbiage of their words. Sad to say, they're still going on today in so many other contexts. Many of us remember Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson's rhetoric after 9-11, implying that this could have been God's judgment on the United States for tolerating abortion and homosexuality. And those of us who heard those particular individuals in those positions of influence couldn't believe what they were saying. Westboro Baptist Church in Indiana. Pickett's funerals of servicemen, saying it's God's punishment for us tolerating homosexuality. Now, is that a church that you'd want to be associated with? But they use their position of influence. In that particular context, they're well-known. You can look it up. Well-known all over the country for using that position in such a negative way as if homosexuality is the only sin left undealt with. Pastor in Florida, I had people call me a, a year or so ago uh, who wanted to burn the Koran. That's what I thought. I had no support of him at all. Some supported the statement, well, they burn our Bible. If burning the Koran is our answer to them, then what makes us different than them? But so many people use the context of influence or the position of influence in and outside the church to steer people in a particular direction, and we need to be in that position no matter where we are or what position we hold, be extremely careful how we use the words that God has given us or the position that God has placed us in. Phil Yancey, who is most well-known for books like Where is God When It Hurts and positions like that, worked as a journalist for 25 years. He had the opportunity when President Clinton was in office to attend a breakfast lunch, breakfast with him, He wrote an article about the situation. He said this, In the aftermath of that article, I received a barrage of letters, many attacking me for the fact that I seem to have portrayed the president in a somewhat favorable light. In my 25 years of journalism, I received my share of mixed reviews. Even so, as I read the stacks of of letters, I got a strong sense for why the world at large doesn't automatically associate the word grace with evangelical Christians. In our desire to be right, we may very well alienate the very people Christ came to save. Now, the other side of the issue for churches and pastors and those in positions of leadership is to remain silent. To remain silent about issues like abortion and gay rights. To remain silent about issues like the homelessness and poverty and social justice. To remain silent about the atrocities in Defar and Serbia and Bosnia and the West Bank. Throughout history, many churches and pastors turned a deaf ear, even in our own context, to the issue of slavery, as if we shouldn't get involved or didn't want to get involved or they're really not that important. Powerful story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never read his story, you ought to. A Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany who believed that 
It was more, that morality demanded of him to participate in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The power of influence was devastating. In Hitler's case, and those in positions, whatever those positions might have been, needed not to be silent, but to be vocal. As a church, we find ourselves in positions of influence in a variety of ways. And one of the questions we constantly need, our, need to ask ourselves is, as a church, how will we influence? How will we use our position of influence? How will you use yours? As every single one of us is a coach or a teacher, a small group leader, a pastor, a mom or a dad, in some way or another is in a position of influence, and it's not the issue of the size of your classroom, but the position you hold. And one of the questions that constantly comes out at me is, what am I going to do with, with my position of influence? The tongue has the power to bring life or bring death. What will I do with mine? How will I use mine? Where will I remain silent on issues that I need to remain silent on? And where will I be vocal about issues that cannot be ignored? As a church, we have the same thing to, to wrestle through. What will we do with this power of influence? What will we do with our position of influence? Will we take a stand or remain silent? What will you do with yours? What will you do and how will you use that two or three inch piece of flesh that's contained within the context of our body that has enormous power? It's a question every single one of us, when I look in the mirror, need to ask myself. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the powerful images that James gives us. He doesn't dance around it, doesn't ignore it. It's pretty straight. And I just ask in the name of Jesus that as we, even as a church, begin to understand our responsibility to the community, our place in this community, our position of influence, for those of us in, in my position, the chair that I sit in and those of us in leadership, God help us to use our position well. To know where we need to take stands and know when we need to remain silent. And to be very, very careful about how we use that place. I lift up Sunday school teachers in this room this morning. Small group leaders, moms, dads, coaches. Just a uh, a host of places that we find ourselves in where we have the opportunity to influence someone else. And God, as we begin to examine how we use this, this tongue of ours and the words that come as a result of it, that we will say, oh God, by your power and by the power of your spirit, would you help me to use it wisely and use it well? To know when to speak and when to be silent. To know how to motivate, not intimidate or humiliate, but to encourage and bring life. Father, throughout this week as we leave this place, I trust that daily as we look into that mirror, that we will really look at that powerful thing inside of us that has such amazing potential to bring life or do damage and we will submit our speech and our tongue 
and our position of influence to you every single day so that we use it for your glory and yours alone. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.